0: hi i'm michael musangu and this is the history connection podcast Hello, and welcome back to another episode of the History Connection podcast, where we discuss different episodes of history and different aspects with the idea that if you do not know your history, you will not know your future. I'm Michael Musangu, a student at the University of Portland who majors in biology and minors in history. And today in this in this next installment of the History Connection podcast, we're going to be discussing one of the most prominent figures in history. In fact, he really has become known worldwide as one of the greatest military generals of all time. And today we're going to go through many different things that really bring him to the peak or bring him close to the peak of his power. And of course, we are talking about Napoleon Bonaparte. Last week, we discussed most of the early themes that were surrounding his early life and leading up to his um, early rise in prominence in France during the, or during the France or during the French Revolution, and now we're going to be discussing most of the themes now from this time period, from the French Revolution and the Reign of Terror up to his coronation in the year 1804. We will also be discussing some of the themes surrounding the political stage in Europe at the time, and some other themes with different countries going on in this time period as well. I hope today that if you um, want to really dig and, and get a lot out of this episode if you would like, take some notes, there's a lot that we're going to be covering, and there's a lot of fun stuff that we'll be covering today, and I hope, you know, with Gabriel here that we can definitely dig into this at a deeper level, you know, in fact, it was actually Gabriel here who taught me a lot about Napoleon, I never learned about Napoleon in this school, I've actually learned about him most recently in the past few weeks and months. And really, it's him who's really got me into really wanting to learn more about Napoleon and who he was as a military genius, and also in the themes that he did in becoming the most prominent citizen of the time that he lived in. So without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, we're going to continue our story on Napoleon Bonaparte. All right. Welcome to the show, Gabriel. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. How are you doing? No, I'm good. That's good. good. That's good. Yeah. So... I mean, I I know you really know a lot about Napoleon, and you taught me a lot of stuff here. So I'm not going to like go and like tell you stuff you already know, but I do want to do a little recap for the things that um, people, you know, may have not like learned if they're like new to the show or something. You know, I want to do a little recap. So I'm just gonna go ahead and do a little recap, and um, yeah, we'll start from there. Right. So Napoleon, as we know, he was born on the island of Corsica, right, in 1769. Yep. And what was really most interesting about this is that he was born one year after Corsica became French. Napoleon was born a French citizen, and I think that's something that people don't realize. One of the themes that I did want to discuss in this um, podcast episode is the idea behind what makes a national citizen of a country a national citizen. Quite an interesting idea, if I say so myself. Because, I mean, if you look at it, Napoleon was... Literally a French citizen, but he spoke Italian. He had Italian culture. I mean, Corsican culture, but that was an Italian state of and,
1: and it, that's the time. And that's the thing, because in, in the beginning, uh, Corsica was actually starting a revolution. They were trying to separate exactly, themselves right. from the Italian state of Genoa, I think? Yes, they were. It was Genoa. Genoa and, yeah. and Genoa, they knew that they couldn't, they didn't want to... Uh, take down the rebellion of Corsica so they basically sold it and gave it to France right and that's actually the time period that Napoleon was in and so it was very interesting the way he was born and how his father really adapted to being French and how right. was, uh, he was kind of rebuked for that right exactly and, yeah and his actually, father and Napoleon had a right exactly you know,
0: I mean, I mean, they had a really—I mean, they had a really close bond, apparently. If you look at the primary sources, Napoleon had a really close bond with his father. In fact, actually, I can just do a little recap for those who are kind of new. Napoleon, um, at the age of ten, he went to france for the first time that's when um he actually started to do his schooling there at the little military school and actually right most of the french actually hated him and despised him because of his his accent accent yes exactly exactly. he was actually learning french while doing school at the same time i mean he really spoke italian so that was also a problem, and he also was a minor nobility. I think people don't recognize this, but he was also a minor nobility, and, and he would, and he would be um,
1: like bullied for being um, a minor nobility. Like right, exactly. Everyone was higher up, and Napoleon right, exactly. didn't everyone have. Was from
0: aristocratic. Yeah, exactly. And exactly. Napoleon did
1: not have that much money, and
0: and, and it... that's right because there was that uh, governor in Corsica who actually sponsored him to go to the school. Exactly, exactly. So exactly. yeah, so really, Napoleon's childhood was really tough in the right. sense that no one really respected him for the. Um, for who he was, because he was really sponsored, aristocrats of the time literally had to give him or or were going to the school because their parents had the money to pay thousands of dollars a year in our in our terms and
1: that 's how the military was uh, funded that way that not funded that 's how the military grew that way <laughs> um it wasn 't really the skilled people that got into the higher positions <laughs> it wasn 't the skilled people it was if you had the reputation right. it was if you had the the uh, background right. you would get um kind of put first into the queue hmm. and um napoleon in that case since he was a minor ability it was harder for him it was actually the resistance against him getting higher in the ranks
0: going up was tough because of the minor ability no. fascinating and um yeah <clears throat> so napoleon went through um this schooling for a couple years and eventually he gained entrance into the main military school uh near paris at brienne i believe now this school um really um was where his military career really started to come into play he was literally ordering the i mean not really ordering i should say but really talking to the school governor and is like hey we you shouldn't be making us you know live like such easy lives real military men don't do this (laughs) And of course, the, the school like principal or governor, wh- whatever you want to say, headmaster, is literally like, yeah, no, <laughs> I'm like what? This is my school. Who are you to t- you? Little <laughs> Who to pee on? You're 15. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know. But what was amazing about Napoleon at this time point is he was 15. He finished two years of cor- of a course of study in 1 year.
1: He was a, he was a mastermind. He was yes. he was a genius. While other people were partying, going out to exactly. parties, being social He was Napoleon. a bookworm. He
0: was, a bookworm. <laughs> I mean, he was
1: in the books, he was reading libraries. people made to... fun of him because of that. Yeah, and yeah. and he um he was like day by day studying. He wanted to become that that mastermind of the right. battlefield. Exactly. He wanted to
0: know how to and army, right, exactly. And, and because of this, this is really what caused Napoleon to really be ostracized. But also people respected him because he literally was a genius. He applied himself in the histories, geometry, uh, geometries, the mathematics, sciences, everything you can think of. He knew about the history of, of of Corsica to the letter, the revolutionaries that m- brought them to where they are, all this stuff. So when he finished his schooling in one year, a two-year course of study, mind you, in one year, he eventually got commissioned in the French military. And one thing we must note is that Napoleon, as a kid, he hated the French. Let's let's get this straight. He did not like the I French. Despise them. He did. And this was because, I mean, of course. I mean, being Corsican, he knew of what the Corsican Corsican revolutionaries did, especially because he started to actually become really close friends with uh, Paoli, Pasquale Paoli, who we discussed last episode, who was one of the main Corsican revolutionaries. And kind of took Napoleon under his wing. Exactly. He took him under his wing and all these things. He saw the potential in Napoleon that many people did not see. Oh, no, for sure. And I mean, mean, that's really what um, led to also, I think, what led to a bit of their... They're having issues later on in the near the years of the French reign of terror. Yes. But um, basically, he then gets commissioned in the military. And he goes on through this time period where he's now working for the French military as a commissioned officer. But that's, you know, a few years of quietness. It really didn't start until 1789 when the French Revolution started. Now, a little background on the French Revolution. In essence, what we notice here is that the French Revolution was where literally... The Jacobins, who were the Republicans, or shall I say, the revolutionaries. These are the people who, and when I mean Republican, I, let me define this. When I mean Republican, I mean people who really want to have an abolished monarchy and have a system under a democratic system. That's the meaning of Republican in the, in the term of country. When i not talking about political parties, we're literally talking about the concept of government. Now, the Jacobins were a faction that wanted Republican values. And they w- did not want a monarchy because they saw the things that Louis Sixteenth did and Marie Antoinette. They, they were, they were um, Marie Antoinette and Louis Sixteenth were very
1: um, disliked by the French people. Oh, they were. The French they people, they, um, yes. they wanted something new. They, they believed that the king and the queen didn't pay respect. To the people right. they didn't pay attention to the people
0: they lived such a lavish lifestyle
1: and yes and and the, the french economy was going down right. right and
0: they were doing nothing about it well that's the thing and and what makes it worse is that they actually sent troops to the u.s and downed more of their money to help with the american revolution <laughs> so after all that happened then the french people were like hold on maybe there's a way we can get free like that <laughs> and of course this was a time also in europe that um monarchy was i mean that was the status quo for most every Every country pretty much every place in europe okay so this idea of liberty and being free and becoming a it really came from the united states came from the united states and the problem with that is most europeans when they saw that france wanted to also abolish monarchy they saw this as dangerous mm-hmm. because they thought, thought that they would start to spread their ideas to exactly the other countries and so they
1: started getting concerned they were exactly they were getting concerned
0: they were asking france what you guys gonna do about this
1: exactly. right exactly such so, and they were feared that if one big power especially france is a huge power in europe mm-hmm. and if one big power the their own people would get the ideas of, like why can't we do what the French people are doing? Look at how it's benefiting them and why can't we do it? Right. And like our monarchies can get destroyed because mm-hmm. of France. And right. now this is called cause for many of them being angry at France mm-hmm. and now are breaking like good ties and yep. now are having, uh,
0: uh, bad, um, bad blood between France. Right. Okay. So now we basically get to where we left off last week. Um, Basically, Napoleon now, he's becoming a rising leader. He really hasn't done much in, on the. He never really participated much in the French Revolution. Let's get this straight. He didn't really do much. But, when he, but his, most of his involvement started to happen when he was called by his general to go to Toulon. Alright. Now, this obviously happened after he went back to Corsica. He did take a hiatus. He went back to Corsica and he re met up with his old. Mentor Pasquale Paoli, and of course, this was during the time when Britain now is seeing that France is weak because they're like, Oh, uh, now they're having a revolution, they're probably gonna be weak. Everyone's you know, you know, nothing centralized. Yeah, there's
1: um, there's no backbone, there's no backbone of the country. So,
0: Britain's like, I think it's time to uh, you know, let's see what we can do in this situation. So, they started viewing Toulon. As one of the we uh, Toulon in this time period was one of the strongest, uh, uh French seaports, uh, where the French navy was based. It was a really strategic place, um, um be, be really close to Corsica, also really close to Italy as well. Um, the peninsula, of course, the meaning. Um, okay, so now, uh, he goes back to Corsica. Pasquale Paoli literally tells him, Hey, I'm going to surrender Corsica to the British. Napoleon's like, why would you do such a thing? First of all, we don't even share the same, and this is one of the things that uh, Napoleon brings up a point in that I really want to discuss. We don't have the same culture. We don't have the same ideologies. We don't have the same language. Yet you want to surrender us to a country because you have good ties with them. And Napoleon said, I, I'm not going to support you in that. So what did Fouli do? He literally went, surrendered Corsica to the British. They became a British isle for two years. And then the British were like, yeah, never mind. (laughs) We can't deal with this. Because literally it was so different. The cultures were so different. Corsica is literally Italian in culture. Mm -hmm. That's why when they actually went under French rule, most people could actually relate to them, but the culture is still different. They spoke Italian, they didn't act the same. Now, this became a problem. And what happened? Napoleon literally had to escape the island. In fact, the British actually came and started looking for him. Now when they did, one of Napoleon's senior generals from Paris, is like, hey, go attack Toulon, Mm -hmm. go defend it. Mm He went and defended Toulon with one of the greatest military geniuses you could ever imagine. And that's actually what made him rise to the prominence that we're going to see where our story starts today in 1794. So Napoleon now comes back from Toulon, right? Really epic battle, glorious, amazing. And he is actually promoted to Brigadier General, okay, in February 1794. But now we reach a time where the Reign of Terror is now in full swing. What is the Reign of Terror? Um, Just a little uh, backstory on the Reign of Terror. Basically, it is this time period where France is literally, or rather, let me say, the new revolutionary government of France. They were actually called the National Convention. First of all, who names a government the National Convention? I mean, name it like the new government of France. That's besides the point. (laughs) So they named the new government the National Convention. It came into power in 1792. This same government beheaded King Louis XVI as a result of, quote, treason in January 1793. And they instituted new martial law. What was this martial law? This basically allowed the revolutionaries or the Jacobin faction to have extremism over the royalists and these were the people who loved the monarchy and wanted to keep the monarchy so one of these um one of the most prominent people of this time period his name or i should say one of the most prominent people of the reign of terror who really headed it really made part of the new convention or national convention i should say and one thing i should note before i get to this gentleman the national convention was really an oligarchy okay this is literally an oligarchy of aristocrats and exactly amazing isn't it (laughs) it's always the aristocrats (laughs) it's really an oligarchy of i think there were 75 people in the main national assembly that did most of the decision making for new france all right now one of the main people who ran this whole thing his name was Maximilien robespierre this guy was the most fascinating guy I've ever seen in history. Because I've never seen such a time where everyone will rally behind this one guy and then rally and turn against him like two years later. I thought that was such a fascinating part of the story. Um, Actually, one of a couple things that we can mention from the Reign of Terror actually that we see during the Reign of Terror, in fact, they created, like it's so crazy what they did. First of all, a couple things. Everyone was suspicious of each other, okay? During this time where there was so much civil unrest, you had the royalists who are basically hiding because all the, all the revolutionaries in the, uh, of the Jacobin faction was literally like, we're going to take down anyone who doesn't want to be a revolutionary and have a new France and a new government. So what did they do? If you called someone Madame ou Monsieur, which translates to ma'am or mister in English and from French, instead of calling someone citoyen, which means citizen, you could actually be sent to the guillotine. Literally this mm-hmm. was the time also where the guillotine was like in full force, right? Mm-hmm. The this is r- we're using it.
1: This time. was where like, um, everyday life it was it was rough. People yeah. around the streets getting killed, because they were so suspicious, they were so um paranoid. Right. Exactly. And for relatively no reason actually. That's there's actually no there's no like hard facts to really um sentence someone to the guillotine, but because the extremists had um so much, you know, force over so much influence over the people actually got them to start being like oh oh so I can't do this etc etc and it made why it's called the reign of terror because so many people were died many people were killed daily right Right. getting sent to the guillotine was a routine activity
0: yes it was it was a routine activity right and and people were getting sent to the guillotine and then uh, uh, it's kind of what you were talking about people were suspicious of everyone there were spies everywhere. Yeah, you couldn't trust anyone. You couldn't trust if even you sl- neighbors. Even they ne- were against you. Because, like,
1: if you were eating, yeah. like, for example, you were eating at like a tavern, a bar. You're right. You said something as like little as Madame, Monsieur, mm-hmm. you would be ratted out, yep. and people would be get rewarded for that.
0: Yeah, exactly. That's the people thing. were getting rewarded for that. In fact, if you said that the monarchy, man, I wish you know, I wish Louis the Sixteenth was king again, sent to the guillotine, like. It, everything you said even if you said something in favor of the past monarchy you were sent to the guillotine
1: even like to a point where like mentioning the monarchy would get them suspicious of you and then yeah. they would even send you to a guillotine just for being just for thinking about the monarchy right exactly. like for like mentioning it they would be like oh this guy is suspicious i don't i don't why is he talking mm-hmm. about the monarchy this
0: is the revolution come on now right, exactly. <laughs> exactly. yeah it, it's crazy i mean even for not being enthusiastic about the revolution <laughs> <laughs> you could be sent to the guillotine like this is how like imagine that in like another country like America like that would be, it sounds crazy it yeah. but these are things that really went on in time and and people need to understand this it got to such a level that actually there was de-christianization they literally took down the the foundation of their society and of course in Europe that was catholicism religion right The Pope, everyone answered to the Pope, most kingdoms answered to the Pope, and if you didn't, you would be excommunicated, you know, people would be worried that their souls were going to hell, so I mean, it was literally something that the Catholic Church used to hold everyone in that grasp of power, and they used dechristianization. In fact, they dechristianized France so much during this time period that they, in fact, actually got rid of the Gregorian calendar, the calendar that we all know and respect today. They actually got rid of that calendar, they actually invented their own new calendar, by the way, (laughs) Just imagine that They invented their own new calendar They invented their different days of the week Different days of the week So it wasn't Sunday, Monday, Tuesday No, no They invented a new system Where it was 10 days in one week 30 days in one month 10 days in one week So there were only 3 weeks in a month It's the craziest system I've ever heard of First of all And They changed the year So it was no longer 1792 It was year 1 And what does year 1 represent? Year 1 of the revolution. So now they don't count from the year 1792. They count from the first year that the revolution started to French democracy And this is literally what people were, um, were Going through if you had religious icons were being destroyed if you had even saints um, uh, There were street names on the there were street names like if it was like, I don't know Saint Cecilia street They would literally tear that down and name it something else in fact they, even the months, were redesigned. Along with like, the, like the, the fact that there was three weeks in a month and 30 days in a month, even the names of the months were redesigned. And because of this, we saw about 40,000 people die, roughly, Th- these are estimates, but about 40,000 people died during the reign of terror. And in fact, about a year and a half later, Robespierre actually fell because <laughs> In fact, the best part about this, he went to a convention, started giving a speech, and everyone started to turn against him and (laughs) literally started to say, down with him, down with him. And they, in fact, actually, um, he was declared an outlaw. And sentenced to the same guillotine that he put so many people (laughs) put so many people to the guillotine and ended up sending, and ended up getting sent himself to the guillotine. So, now, Napoleon comes back into the story how so so now napoleon is recognizing that all this stuff is happening around france you know he's just kind of laying low minding his own business
1: and he takes this opportunity really he's thinking now Mm -hmm. france doesn't have a true leader we don't have a backbone and he's like let me think right right the monarchy is down people want revolutionary ideas Mm -hmm. france is in chaos right they don't have a leader Mm -hmm. what can i do to change that right this is my time. This is like my opportunity. Let me seize this moment, because right, exactly. there's no, uh, there's no better moment could have been presented but that one. That's like perfect.
0: Right. Exactly. The
1: everything, it, everyone is open to new ideas. They're like clay. They can easily
0: be molded. Right. Exactly. And the and the easiest way that Napoleon saw this actually it wasn't really through him, it was his commanding general once again. They he was the one actually who was told to defend this convention that was going on with Robespierre eventually getting um, guillotined. But he was the one given charge to defend his convention. He actually seized the artillery and then he used it to re- to repel all the loyalists that were coming to attack him, right? Uh, and and in fact, it was described as a whiff of grape shots that he used to, um, to actually um, take these defenses. And that's what mm-hmm. actually brought Napoleon to really this level of national hero, because now he's defending the ideals of the revolution, right? And, and that's where he really earned his name. In fact, he was suddenly a household name, wealth, every, uh, his wealth, his dependence, everything came from this name. And when Robespierre went down, a new government formed, and this was called the French Directory. Again, with the weird French names for governments. I mean, Seriously, just call it French government Two or something like that. But no, you call it the French directory. Yeah. Anyways, now the French directory, what was this? The French directory was a group of five members. Napoleon, because he now was one of these prominent members of the time, he became part of the French directory and in fact, was starting to become a major decision maker as part of the directory. In fact, this new government was the smaller version of the National Convention. It's a totally new government, still an oligarchy, five men who are running the affairs of the whole country. So now he's doing this, <clears throat> and while he's doing this, he's given an army of about 20 to 30,000 men, once he gets his new post in the French directory. And they call this the Army of Italy, I mean, these are Frenchmen, they're not Italians, but they call it the Army of Italy. And he's basically, literally told, we're going to go and take Italy. We're going to go and do some things to, uh, you know, take Italy, show our French prowess as a new French republic. In fact, before his Italian campaign, he actually married his wife, Josephine de Bohani. Donc, Boarny. So, he married uh, his wife, and a couple days later, actually, off to Italy, he went. And that actually started the Italian campaign. We are now in the year 1796. So, <clears throat> um, Napoleon now heads off on his Italian campaign. And one thing we must note, Napoleon is an underdog in this campaign, okay? Yeah. He's really outnumbered, okay? <clears throat> he has about 20 to 30,000 men. So, in this
1: campaign, really, Napoleon... Um... There was basically three main French armies. Two armies uh, up in the north and fighting the main Austrian uh, forces um, up north. And they had Napoleon's army down in the south. Napoleon was really meant to be a sideshow. He was meant to be um, just a puppet. He wasn't meant to be um, anything big. Nothing big was to be lost or to gain, really, from Napoleon. It was just... um, fighting um about the main armies but when the main armies basically became to a standstill not much not much progress was being made napoleon made staggering staggering advances
0: and and wasn't it during this time actually one of his commanding officers told him go take the papal states and he refused to because he wanted to go do his own thing I, I mean, Napoleon was a common cause. You know I mean? <laughs> like this man knew what he was doing. Yeah. In fact, I mean, uh, estimates of the numbers I actually got from one of the sources, um, there were about thirty-eight thousand Austrians and twenty-five thousand Piedmontese. Now these, um, now this is about sixty-three thousand men on the Austrian side, and then Napoleon had only about you know on his side about thirty-eight thousand yep. French soldiers. So he leads his army into Italy. Beginning of April, 1796, Hmm. and in fact, within two weeks, like, this is where we start to realize the military prowess of Napoleon, within two weeks of entering Italy, he literally took down and broke the backbone of the Piedmontese army, and in fact, it was so good that, the way I can describe it, Napoleon, let's discuss Napoleon's attacking style real quick.
1: Yes, it's, um... Napoleon really uh, focused on three main concepts when attacking: mm-hmm. speed,
0: right, exactly, and
1: he also focused on
0: not being predicted.
1: Yes, being very unpredictable,
0: speed, unpredictability, and literally just battle genius. I mean, it, yeah, that's all yeah. it was. Because I mean, the thing is, is like that's what made him effective, right? Because the Piedmontese army literally had an idea of they were going to do certain things and it didn't work because napoleon was too unpredictable and
1: in one instance what he did um actually is um one of his famous um attack strategies is he would split the enemy in an encircling attack Hmm. where he'd split down the middle Hmm. and then take the sides in two smaller groups so Hmm. the enemy would now be broken into pieces their communications cut off because napoleon barreled through the middle of their um Um, Through the middle of their armies and split and attack them in two separate battles Mm -hmm. to now crush them in in an encircling movement powerful, it's it's pretty
0: deep, right and and um, Obviously he eventually um, broke through the Piedmontese army by April 26. They surrendered (laughs) literally 24 days after entering Italy Napoleon has broken the backbone of the Piedmontese army and in fact he was literally pushing the Austrians back, because now we're, we're in Northern Italy at this mm, point, right? Yeah. He's pushing the Austrians back all the way to the Austrian border, right? And actually, I mean, I think during this time period, he eventually reached one of the major battles of the time, which was the Battle of Lodi.
1: So <clears throat> the Battle of Lodi around this time was really a stepping stone for Napoleon's greatness. This is really what cemented him to become great among his men. See, in the Battle of Lodi, Napoleon's army was really, more or less, I believe they were um, outnumbered, because they were exhausted from marching all the way um, into Italy. See, even though you're getting these victories, these battles, these battles, it's very tiring and taxing on your men because you're marching, you're going, you're going. Mm -hmm. So, at this front in Lodi, Napoleon's men are lined up across um, what is kind of two banks. So the enemy's on one side and Napoleon's army's on the other side. Mm -hmm. Napoleon's men exhausted and tired, but Napoleon has um, courage that the men actually started feeding off of. The men started getting um, inspired by Napoleon, their commander. They're like, wow, Napoleon, wow, this guy, he's uh, very, very headstrong. He's, um, I can depend on him. And so Napoleon, during this fight... It was really a standstill. They basically um, they met at Lodi at around 9 a.m., mm-hmm. and the battle lasted basically all day. They met at Lodi at 9 a.m., and it was basically just a standstill. Firing, return, firing, return, firing. And so they were waiting for the French's um, reinforcements to come and uh, eventually back them up. And so when the French reinforcements came and backed them up at around, I believe that was 5 p.m., and they came and backed them up. Napoleon actually started manning the cannons himself this gained him the ultimate respect of his men his (laughs) men even gave him a nickname
0: Oh little corporal of course. They
1: gave him the nickname the little corporal (laughs) They were so inspired on how he was up there Mm -hmm. manning the cannons himself Mm -hmm. in the fray of the battle getting dirty You know doing the stuff that a commander usually doesn't do Mm -hmm. Commanders usually barking orders from the back Napoleon was up there with his men and so this so much um, inspiration that Napoleon gave to the men actually Um, when he basically um, ordered a basically um, a suicidal um, uh, assault on the bridge that was made of um, a couple planks uh, with pikes supporting. It was like, yeah, he made a basically suicidal attempt on the bridge that could have been burnt, could have been bombed easily. The men did it without hesitation. Taking the hungry, because the Austrians had um, no food, taking the uh, hungry Austrians and the Menti's army taking them by force and um, really just destroying them because they're tired and Napoleon's army was just really more unpredictable because no one would have thought to really drive a fight across that bridge no one would think that they would push and Napoleon um, eventually um, won that battle the battle ended around 8 p.m. and Napoleon won that battle and that was a big stepping stone because he won that battle Now the Austrians are being pushed back. Now they're like, because that was a staggering defeat. Napoleon, I believe the casualties were around 3,000 for Napoleon and over 9,000 for the Austrians. It it was
0: crazy. Powerful. And and so he really pushed them back. And I mean, I think one of the things that you actually mentioned that I wanted to also look at, Napoleon was called little corporal. And what I find interesting about this is, I mean, right? Corporals, I mean, these are the people who are working with, The you know army that you're with you know you're with your men, you're the one doing the grunt work, Mm -hmm. right? They gave him that name because that's what he did. He gave orders, but he also manned the cannons. Mm -hmm. He gave orders and he made people realize, hey, I'm doing this for France. I'm doing this for French liberty, but I'm also doing this for glory as well. And they believed him because he was also a good spokesman. Mm -hmm. He knew how to talk, and because and he commanded the respect of his men Mm. because he also Mm. he didn't command them to do something that he wouldn't do himself and i think that's what made napoleon very popular Mm. among his men at least he 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 did things that his that he wouldn't make his people do himself
1: he was showing that his men that their commander he wasn't a coward right exactly their commander he wasn't a coward their corporal sorry he wasn't a coward Mm -hmm. um he was very um he was there he was there Mm. for them and he was there with them,
0: fighting the right. same fight that they were fighting. Right. Even as Brigadier General, right, he's literally lowering himself down to humility to show, hey, I'm on your side. You know, it's, it's amazing. Yeah. So <clears throat> from these battles, right, he also had some uh, quick battles in uh, Bassano and Arcole, and he drove the Austrians out of Lombardy and defeated the army of the Papal States. So he's literally pushing the Austrians all the way back. Pushing them out of Italy because remember, as we discussed last episode, the Austrians actually had command of Italy. Most of the, most of that peninsula, of the Italian peninsula was under Austrian rule. Uh, Napoleon started pushing
1: them back now. And because, border and, border. and when Napoleon started pushing them back, the battle um, with the North with the two bigger armies suddenly became easier for the French people. Exactly. And so now since Napoleon, um, let's say Australian, uh, Australian Austria's, right. um Let's say, like underbelly, basically mm-hmm. was getting attacked. They needed to start, you know, withdrawing men, mm-hmm. starting to help them out, and they couldn't man the support of the two massive armies right. up in the main battle mm-hmm. because Napoleon was making so much staggering defeats mm-hmm. that they that were really unexpected. No one mm-hmm. really expected that <clears throat> from two small armies. Right. They expected a standstill, but that actually happened in the main armies. Wow. So now, because of that, it thwarted um, the armies in of the North to start you know falling back and needing more resources to help napoleon's push napoleon's advance they needed to defend that Mm -hmm. and it made the french easier to break the barriers of austria
0: Hmm. powerful and i mean it's true i mean the the french were breaking the barriers of austria throughout the summer of uh, summer and fall of 1796 he literally is beating up the austria he actually pushes the Austrians all the way back into the Austrian Alps. Let, let's just think about this. Like he pushes them all the way back into the Alps by April 1797. He was 75 miles away from Vienna, the capital. Like, think about what at the end of the uh, what I'm gonna put in the show notes. Actually, is I'm gonna put in the show notes the map of the geography of the amount of land. Napoleon literally took over during this time period. In
1: this short period of time as well, he literally These were them over these were quick battles because yes. Napoleon's um oh yes, Napoleon's uh, strategy was so unorthodox, never exactly. seen before. That's what made him powerful. It was so yes. they were they were struck and down. You know how um armies usually had major caravans to bring food, etc. Exactly. Napoleon actually thrived. This is actually a cool fun fact. He mm-hmm. actually thrived on Telling his men to live off the land.
0: That's exactly. Making right. him fast. That's exactly. Uh, making
1: them um, faster. Making yeah. them quicker. And so they can um, uh, travel across vast lands in short amounts of time to beat the enemy. That's exactly. To right. the positions. Yeah. To beat the enemy. And because they uh, had like, lighter supplies and stuff, Napoleon's men could um, execute these um, mass pushes hmm. in lightning fast. These are basically microsecond battles. In in war trips, right? Because right. Napoleon's men were just um, so quicker close. and yeah, you know, right. and insane. they were professionals. And, they're, mean, and they're, they they
0: yeah. weren't professionals at first. We must know.
1: Most but, of them were conscripts because Napoleon
0: was yeah. a smaller army. But the more he taught them how to fight, they became really professional. So now, by the time he gets nearly to Vienna, he's the Austrian emperor. Now is like, <laughs> I want peace. So he sues for peace. <laughs> that part cracks me up every time yeah. I think about that. He had to sue for his own yes, peace. Yes. And actually, um, another thing that I will put in the show notes as well that um, I think um, that over the next, few, uh, next episode as we will discuss the final installment of this, I'm going, to pr- I'm going to discuss some of the treaties that Napoleon actually made with the Austrians. Because Napoleon has made a lot of treaties with the Austrians and the Austrians never honored these treaties. Mm-mm. I just find that interesting. They, they, <clears throat> Napoleon's relationship with the Austrians was very interesting
1: because yes, it was, yeah. he kept on beating them back. They kept on coming back and he kept on beating right. them down again. Right. Exactly. They didn't really understand when to stop. <laughs> yeah, exactly. They <laughs> couldn't they, take a <laughs> hint. Yeah, they, they really couldn't take a hit Napoleon was, um, he was, um, yeah, he was
0: just very powerful. Yeah. And, and so the, the treaty that Napoleon made, right, in Vienna with the Austrian Emperor was the Treaty of Campo Formi. This basically ended the War of the First Coalition. Now, the War of the First Coalition, the main players really, again, France, Britain... Austria. There were some little powers there, but they were all fighting France because of those revolutionary ideas that we discussed earlier, and they didn't want those revolutionary ideas of abolishing monarchy to spread in Europe, so they started to attack France, and they had their little skirmishes on the side.
1: And so, well, a little uh, thing that I would like to put through these like, last few episodes that we're doing on Napoleon is, before Napoleon you know, gets crowned emperor, these coalition wars, we want to really look at it as two things. French victories and Napoleon victories.
0: Hmm.
1: So think about it. This first war of the coalition was really a French victory in all. Hmm. Napoleon is now getting traction in the Hmm. French uh, military and stuff. Hmm. Now you will see throughout the coalitions that it will be less of a French victory and more of a Napoleon victory. Hmm. People will start fearing Napoleon more than they fear France. And you guys will see that in the information to come fascinating I
0: mean yeah I mean especially with Campo Formeo with Napoleon we also see him morph into what we know as this political statesman because if you notice at Campo Formillo he is the one that actually is overseeing the main diplomatic points of the treaty by the way I mean yes he's part of the French directory but he's a military general he's not a politician mm. yet we see him start to do polit- political moves and what he did, Is he literally started negotiating these parts of the treaties and in fact it got so real that he literally basically said okay austria we're going to give you venice by the way venice was basically uh independent for like a thousand years and basically napoleon promised austria venice Uh, that, that made me laugh so much he basically promised them venice without venice even knowing so basically, when he promised them Venice, he then went back and literally attacked Venice, <laughs> took them over, and said, "Okay, Austria, here you go." Like this is the type of guy Napoleon is. Like he literally—he feared nobody. Exactly, he feared no one, and he literally is like, "If there's no plan, I will make a plan. <laughs> or if there's no way, rather, I'll make, make a way." way. <laughs> <laughs> right. So uh, he literally took down Venice's 1,000-year independence because Napoleon said. We're going to trade you Venice for all your territories. That yeah, he's we like, took. we're <laughs> going to trade you
1: Venice for all these things. Oh, wait, hold on. Let me actually go conquer Venice. I'll be right back. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So he
0: did all this. Okay. So now he sets himself up as a political
1: leader. And at this point, Napoleon mm-hmm. is still very young. Keep in mind, mm-hmm. most generals, um, most like you know, high military leaders and stuff, you would uh, think you know, they're old and stuff. Napoleon was so great. He was mentally ahead of his time. Way ahead of his time mentally. At this time Napoleon was only like around in his like uh, mid 20s, late 20s, yes. No, mid, no mid 20s. 20, yeah. 25,
0: 26, yeah. Yeah. He's not even 30. He's not even 30 so yet. i put him at about 28. You know, yeah. He's 28. He's crazy. This is about 1797. So, yeah, um I mean, now I mean, now this is getting interesting, right? Because now he's setting himself up as a political leader and he is sending uh and now there are um, one of the members of the directory his name was Barras now he literally is like you're defying all my orders napoleon you're in trouble so what does napoleon do he sends a general back to paris to lead a coup d'etat <laughs> he literally is like okay you want to play this game i'm going to take over the government <laughs> so he sends a general back to paris and basically the thing is, is it, it Basically, what he did, he sends the general back to Paris, basically, and with all the royalists that are now gaining traction, because Napoleon's gone. He's the one who, and this is one thing that we don't realize, Napoleon was the one who was really keeper of the peace, because he was the one that kept the royalist faction from rising up against the Jacobin revolutionaries, right? So basically, he sends that general back, and mm-hmm. is like, I'm going to take over mm. the French directory. Mm. And Barras is like, oh, wow, that's how it is, huh? And then, basically, Napoleon goes, yeah. And he basically allows for the French, uh, for for this French general to basically take over the whole French directory. And now they're dependent on Napoleon to keep the royalists from taking over all of France and ruining all that momentum that the Jacobins have um Uh, have made up since the beginning of the French Revolution. So literally now, Napoleon is in control of the whole French directory because if his military troops with that general he sent back up to Paris isn't there, literally the French directory will be overrun by royalists. So now we understand that Napoleon is now morphing. He's literally more... He, I feel like this is um, him
1: recognizing his power. Exactly. He's now thinking. He has he's like, power over the French directly. Because now, exactly. now he's knowing he's noticing that without him, mm-hmm. they don't have the military means to fight off the royalists. Right, exactly. Now he's realizing his true power. Now, if he taps into that power, mm-hmm. he notices, like, I'm, in, in hindsight, in bottom line of things, and when everything crunches down, when all the numbers crunch
0: down, Right. I have more power than you. Exactly, and, and and because of this, now he finishes his peace negotiations with Austria, he goes back to Paris, and, you know, there was a bit of lull in that time period, there, there wasn't really much happening going on in a few months, but he basically goes back, and now we start to enter the period known as the War of the Second Coalition.
1: And so, starting in the Second Coalition, um, what really um, was the main factor of this beginning of this coalition... Was when Napoleon um, made a trade blockade um, mm-hmm. against Britain. You see, uh, France and um, France and Britain they had a very the United Kingdom they had a very tough relationship. They were known as very um, big um, rivals. Mm-hmm. They were known as rivals, and since um, Britain really ruled the waves, ruled the the waves. You know, mm-hmm. um, France couldn't really launch an attack, so he's like. Because um, the United Kingdom was actually supplying France's enemies, (laughs) Napoleon had to put his mind together. He's like, what can I do? Because my enemies are getting money, and I can't do anything to go fight the United Kingdom. So what can I do? So what uh, Napoleon started to do was he made a blockade, um, stopping the money that um, the United Kingdom was giving to his allies and Hmm. forcing um, his allies to stop getting... uh, E- uh, economic benefits from United Kingdom right but right. this treaty actually was uh, devastating for both sides mm-hmm. you see the United Kingdom was very wealthy right they had a lot of money mm-hmm. they had a lot of trade um, um trade um, items that helped benefited both sides and with that blockade people's economy started to drain
0: Right.
1: It, this was very prominent in places like Russia <laughs> Russia's economy actually took a really big tank and they were one of the first to start breaking and start uh, breaking the, the treaty that Napoleon made. Because at this point, Napoleon um, basically owned most of uh, Eastern Europe. Wow. And so, he like, broke the trade that uh, Russia had. I mean, Russia, sorry, broke the uh, treaty that Napoleon had. But it started to trade with Britain again.
0: Well, I mean, but that, I mean, that part where Russia comes in, comes in a bit later. Because that comes in with the continental... Uh, that one law that Napoleon made, right? The continental law thing the continental like embargo where he couldn't really where they couldn't really trade but yeah it's just true the british did uh he literally created trade embargoes Mm. on the british Mm. because he didn't want them to Mm. trade overseas because he recognized they were a strong power Mm. so basically now later in the year 1798 he is like i'm going to go take egypt now (laughs) he's like you guys seem pretty chill here in france i'm going to go conquer the world So let's go to Egypt, takes 35,000 men, hops to Egypt, and literally on his way to Egypt, he arrives in Malta and gets um, caught by a British fleet. He eludes them, (laughs) barely escapes, by the way, and lands in Alexandria. He lands in Alexandria, and let's note again, Napoleon was outnumbered by a lot when he lands there, okay? But the thing is, um, during this time period, we also must recognize that the Egyptians were ruled by the Ottomans, right? The Ottoman Empire, um, the main remnants that we know of the Ottoman Empire today is modern Turkey. The Ottoman Empire, really vast in that time period, had a lot of what we know as the Middle East, that sort of area, Iraq, uh, Syria, extending all the way down into Egypt, okay, and, and, and places like that. Now. He, the Ottoman Empire was really strong. He literally goes and lands in Alexandria, and decides, okay, let's take him over. He takes over Alexandria, does his job there. I mean, literally. I mean, literally everywhere. And then a couple weeks later, he then goes. Actually, on uh, it was the twenty-first of July. He runs into the Mamluks. Now, he literally leads them into about. Ba- he leads into a battle, and. It took literally about an hour. Uh, um, They were actually really outnumbered. Three to one, actually. I think their numbers were about 10,000 people. Uh, 10,000 soldiers, I should say. They were outnumbered, they did a battle, and it took about three, uh, one hour, and it was over and now um before we get really in depth i think of the whole thing that napoleon is doing in in egypt because there is a lot that goes on i mean we're going to go over a year worth of stuff we're going to stop here and we'll come back when and we'll do a whole delve now and do a whole second part Mm -hmm. from napoleon's time in egypt to the end of his coronation yes hello welcome back to the history connection podcast my name is michael musangu and we are here with our guest gabriel musangu to discuss napoleon and really his time from the beginning of the french revolution in 1793 from his rise in early prominence yes. to what becomes his near the apotheosis or the peak of mm-hmm. who napoleon was mm-hmm. as a military general as a person yeah. we left off with Napoleon just entering Egypt, he literally just took over Alexandria, literally was outnumbered, uh, really outnumbered, mm. and literally just flat out decimated them. Even with the Ottoman Empire mm-hmm. really on his tracks, yeah. So he literally finishes the battle in Cairo. That's where we left off. Yeah. Finishes the battle in Cairo. Or, I'm sorry. Finishes the battle in Alexandria after uh, uh, um, coming towards the Mamluks, right? And he came towards them beat them up within an hour three days later he now marches into cairo and he let and he leaves this whole campaign there and here's what's the best part now he leaves this ho- his whole army into cairo and he's like we're gonna fight the problem is the british fleet are like oh okay so let me uh let's come and uh <laughs> and do some stuff so literally the british fleet now they come and they try to basically how do i say um, stop France from stop Fr- France's fleet from trying to have an effect in the Mediterranean waters and basically the admiral of the time none other than uh, well I actually can't, can't remember his name right now I'll think of his name later on I'm assuming I'm but um, this admiral was very prominent and basically what he did is he came and he split the, Fr- mm-hmm. the French's fleet uh, the French's fleet in half mm. in fact this French fleet literally was powerful. I mean I am sorry. This British fleet was really powerful. I and
1: mean, um um the United Kingdom was really um a naval power. It, yeah, yeah, they were um undisputed in the waves. No one could really Right exactly. They that was what they had. Their yeah. navy, they weren't really known for their army, mm-hmm. but their navy it was undisputed. No one could uh touch. No that was sure. The navy. And, the and, way they the way they mastered um the battle, mm-hmm. their uh, mm-hmm. their tactics were uh, so rigid and like it was basically what Napoleon was doing on land. The British, the was, British were, were doing, doing on water. Exactly. Exactly. exactly, they were. And, and, yeah, in one in one instance, they actually did what seemed like a crazy attempt. Because um, battles back then, ships were like lined up in columns and they were right, fighting exactly. cannons. Yeah. the British actually penetrated going hmm. straight while they were facing sideways. They would go straight through them, hmm.
0: and it just broke the. Uh, enemy's forces in half fascinating so yeah um it was amazing and um so horatio nelson admiral horatio nelson was the commander that led this battle he literally took his british fleet split the french in half decimated the french navy and now the french were basically stuck (laughs) in cairo defeated on the naval front of course well napoleon was obviously doing his thing you know, fighting the, the Ottomans. Fighting the good fight. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so the funny thing is, is now Napoleon's kind of getting restless. Um, there's been a lull in battles. There hasn't been very many, many attacks over the end months of 1798. So early 1799, he hops into Syria. And when I say Syria, this is part of the Ottoman Empire. So this is now, what was called Syria in this time was actually composing or comprising of the modern state of Israel. He literally... Defeated the Ottoman forces that were there, but the problem with Napoleon's army and this time is now there was disease and there was a lot of weaknesses um, on that front. So it actually forced him to retreat. He mm-hmm. actually couldn't even take Acre. Mm-hmm. Acre, if if uh, most people don't know, this was a historical land point in history, actually, where even from the times of the Crusades, right? The, the Catholic Crusades, they would go, they made... Uh, uh, Christian outposts in uh, Jerusalem and Acre, and when Acre fell, the the European hold in the Middle East was really going down. Yeah. But Acre, I mean, they still had some European influence during that time because even during the time of Crusades, when the Catholics came and they took it over, it had a lot of uh, Christian force in the Middle East during that time. So when they couldn't even attack Acre. Napoleon couldn't so he literally is like okay well I think then I'm going to have to go back home <laughs> I mean there was literally lulls and battles he couldn't do anything he was at a point where literally nothing was working He's in stands, so, yes. so he literally is like okay I think I'm gonna go home so he literally abandoned his troops yes that's right he abandoned his troops <laughs> he literally is like I'm gonna dip, and he literally decided to <laughs> <Not> go home. <laughs> he left his uh, troops under Marshal Jean-Baptiste Clébet, and he returned to France. And the reason is he was keeping a close eye on the things that were going on in Europe, and he decided- are rising. There were a lot of tensions rising, there were a lot of things going on in Europe, and knowing um, politically, he's like, well, maybe there's something I can do over there. <laughs> he's like, would not rather be here? <laughs> Right, exactly. But, I mean, most people also, most people what people don't realize, most people think that Napoleon just abandoned his troops. Even when he got back to Paris, most people thought, so you just abandoned your whole army and left them in Egypt. What most people don't realize, the French Directory actually were the people who told him, hey, come back to Paris, we're having problems. We're getting up above again. We're having problems with, uh, again, with the War of the Second Coalition going on. We're having problems with, Uh, The French army Who are doing their own battles With Mm -hmm. the Austrians And other powers of the time They're trying to take us over Mm -hmm. We are having struggles We need you to come back Be the general Come save the day Yeah So Napoleon goes back Be the hero Exactly Yeah So now he goes back And now this is where It starts to get juicy Like um, I hope All you listeners I hope you really start To now pay attention If you weren't paying attention before Pay attention now Because this is about to get fun (laughs) Napoleon now is approached by one of the members of the directory. His name was Emmanuel-Joseph Sier, all right? He literally wants to overthrow the French constitution that they had built in the new French government, which is known as the French directory. And he wanted to instate a coup. He literally wanted to overtake that, overthrow this government and come up with his own, where basically Emmanuel-Joseph wanted to be uh, one of the leaders. He wanted to be a leader himself. So what did he do? This was called the coup of the 18 Brumaire. In other words, this was November 9th to 10th, 1799. Now, again, 18 Brumaire, meaning the 18th of the month of Brumaire. This, again, is under the new calendar calendar of the French. I don't even know what Brumaire stands for, but uh, whatever. But they made their own new calendar. So, yes. uh, So, they went ahead. And Napoleon took his troops. He literally went and seized control of the legislative councils. And I believe this was during the time period where he goes in and, and takes control of the legislative councils. And they're like, hey, Napoleon, you're back. And he's like, yes, sir. And I'm taking over too. <laughs> like, he literally takes over. And he literally beats out even the guy who approached him to overtake the coup. He literally goes... Takes over the legislative council, and then he goes to uh, Emmanuel joseph Sie, and he goes, yeah, I'm taking over you, too. I'm beating you he's out. He's like, "He's like, whatever you can do, I can do better. <laughs> literally. Yeah. So, he literally, like, drafts a new constitution, because Emmanuel Joseph-Cierre, he literally drafts a new constitution, and it's called the Constitution of Year 8. Now, again, remember, this is a new date system as well. This is literally eight, eight years... From the first year of the French Revolution, yeah, yeah. which is 1792, mm-hmm. so this is 1799. So year eight. Yeah. So he literally now seizes power and praises himself as first consul. And when when he places himself
1: as first consul, he really like started taking power. Yes. He did. At, at this at this point, he was really. At this point, he was really like um, a mini a mini king. Well, as, I mean, yes, he was. He totalitarian. As a as, yeah. as um as a first consul, he started mm-hmm. taking powers from the second and third consul. Yep. And at that point, they really had no true power. Cuz right. anything that they did had to be run through Napoleon. Mm-hmm. So in hindsight, he was really the new
0: leader of France. He was the new leader of France. Yes. I mean, being first consul, he had to do what he could to, you know, mm. uh, become to do what he did because he, he recognized the weakness that was going on in mm-hmm. France and he decided to take over yeah. So what he did was now in becoming first consul. He's now a new leader He's now running this new government new constitution and he institutes what is called the Napoleonic Codes. Are, are you familiar with that? Yes. Napoleonic codes. Yeah, and, and what's amazing about the Napoleonic codes is the things that he that were in them I mean, it's very I would say very contrary to the things that we would think Today, I mean, yeah. Well, especially with the ideas that we have in our society, yeah. most people wouldn't agree with them. Oh, yeah. But these are the things that he did. I mean, these are also back then. Of course, During I mean, it was time. 1799, but the ideals were different. But let's remember, there was also the, de- the dechristianization of France. But if we remember from episode one, um, Napoleon mentioned in one of the primary sources I read out that he mentioned that Christianity. I think it was Napoleon or one of Napoleon's contemporaries. He mentioned that Christianity, without it. Government cannot run you need Christianity because that's the moral code Mm -hmm. of the of Society that it's run under and he believed that religion had to be part of society Yeah, of course the French with the new revolution wanted to Mm de-christianize, but Napoleon was not this way Mm -hmm. So what did he do? He instituted the Napoleonic codes now? There were some lasting reforms actually that remained with these codes some of these um, um, Lasting codes we had the centralized administration Centralized government, right? We had higher education, universities probably being brought up to higher levels, more lo- levels that we understand and know today. Institution of a tax system. We had a central bank. And we had, obviously, updating of actually the sewer system, mm-hmm. the roads, yeah. law codes. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, everything Everything was revolutionized under the Napoleonic codes. And for them, that was what was modern. A- exactly. It was very modern, especially because, I mean... With France being under Louis Sixteenth, you know, yeah. in, in, in the throes of the French Revolution, France was probably really trashed at the time. And with Napoleon just cleaning everything up, I mean, obviously there was a lot of modernization going on during this time period. Okay, so he creates now this new framework of law. And this new framework of law regards a lot of property, colonial affairs, different individual rights, things that we would know. Uh, and uh, uh, and when I say individual rights, I mean really, like, regarding to the rights of the individual, the person. Because some of these laws basically instituted institute the man as the head of the family. There was this absolute authority of the man over the family. And in fact, it actually deprived women of their individual rights, yep. reducing... And, and in fact, not only did it re- uh, limit the rights of women, it literally strip them of their individual rights it also reduced the rights of illegitimate children so now unless you were literally a legitimate child born under holy wedlock right you could not be legitimate in society and you could not have the same um the same uh how do i say access to things the same opportunity to things that people who were born of a legitimate birth Uh, Legitimate birth meaning, you know, you are born under holy wedlock, under matrimony, versus being born out of under matrimony. Okay, so now, another thing, um, with male citizens now having all these rights under law, um, male citizens were granted equal rights under the law, and the right to religious descent occurred, and with this, we have the advent of colonial slavery reinstated. Now, France actually got rid of colonial slavery and some Mm -hmm. of the French, um, one of the main French islands that were known at the time was the island of Haiti. Haiti comes into this story because um, they were part of this French colonial, they were under French colonization. Mm -hmm. So he literally reinstituted colonial slavery and everyone was mad about it. Mm -hmm. Everyone was mad. In fact, this is what will lead to the Haitian Revolution, yeah. which we'll discuss a little later, and we'll move forward from there. Mm-hmm. So now, moving into the year 1800, Okay, Napoleon now has to go back to Italy, because Austria had retaken some land again. Austria really didn't know when to quit, did they? <laughs> they literally didn't. So he literally goes back to Italy, retakes some land, and the reason Napoleon had to go back to Italy as well... Austria had come back, retaken the land that he had gained when he was in Egypt, right? So he had to go back and and, and fight them back again. So he literally um, had this time. He had terrible campaigns in Austria. Mm-hmm. Did not go very well. No. Didn't go very well at all. But these campaigns that he had ended up victorious in the end. He beat Austria so bad that in fact, he had to sign another peace treaty, but Austria wouldn't even recognize the treaty during the no- negotiations at luneville this was one of the battle uh, this was one of the places um, where actually napoleon led one of the major treaties mm-hmm. so what he did is that okay you're not going to recognize my treaty general go attack again <laughs> he literally ordered them to beat Australia into er, Australia, austria into a pulp again he beat them at uh hohenlinden if i'm reading that correctly he beat them at hohenlinden and general jean Moreau, was the one who made Austria surrender in February 1801, and this was where a proper treaty was signed, and this was called the Treaty of Luneville. This treaty, obviously, again, reinforced what the treaty at at Campo Formio had made, and the British then signed the Treaty of Amiens, which was a bit later in March of 1802, and France basically wins out of this because they gain more territory in Italy
1: and and what Napoleon really does during all these treaties is while he is um you know making his um power known and stuff he actually during these treaties what he starts doing is he starts demilitarizing right. Austria right exactly. so they can't come back exactly he starts demilitarizing different um puppy states, mm-hmm. as we call them. Mm-hmm. They doing demilitarizing didan- different puppy states that Austria had, and they had to withdraw their forces, and he limited the amount of forces they actually could
0: have. Mm-hmm. Yes. And it was amazing. Yeah. So now with these two treaties, right, the Treaty of Luneville and the Treaty of Amiens, France, Britain, and Austria now have these peace treaties, and basically France wins out because he gains more territory in Italy. Mm-hmm. So he now is like, okay, En tout cas, I'm good. Let's let's chill out. Yeah. You know, he's he's feeling good. 180 now let's backtrack a little bit to 1801. One thing I didn't mention was the Concordats of 1801. Basically, France is now now Napoleon's is now Napoleon, right? He's first consul. He's literally putting himself into this position of power. Let's remember France was dechristianized at this time period, right? During a time where most of Europe was really in league with the papacy. France is like, I would like to come back. Pope, I would like to come back. Let's uh, be friends again. And literally come back into that process of being in league with France. They got, they de-Christianized, got rid of Christian names on the streets as we went over. They got rid of the Gregorian calendar and they came with their, up with their own calendar. They came up with their own secular regime all these things Mm -hmm. and he decided yes i am going to make restitutions with italy and the paper states again yeah all right so now he does this and the best part now we are at the end of 1802 1802 we are now seeing haiti get mad because now we have colonial slavery going on in haiti and haiti's like we're not going to be having this yes so they literally so haiti starts revolting. Kind of what Corsica did when France... It's it's the the same, exactly. When Genoa was uh, overtaking France... or I'm sorry, when Genoa was overtaking France. When Genoa was overtaking Corsica, they literally revolted because they didn't want to be taken over. Exactly. Haiti did the same exact thing, but they were under French colonialization. That's the thing we need to realize. They were under French power. The thing is, is that... I mean, yeah. Right, but the thing is, is that Haiti was under slavery again. Genoa didn't make the Corsican slaves.
1: They, But they were under, um, what is it? Yeah, they're under rule of Genoa.
0: Guys. Yes, but France instituted slavery. Oh, I see. Like taskmasters, whips. Oh, yeah. Right? So that's the problem. <laughs> yeah. And of course, most of the population of Haiti were Africans. Yes. Uh, a lot of blacks, Caribbean-type mm. peoples. Okay. So now this is going on. So Napoleon is like, okay, I'm going to send my troops back. We're going to go back to uh, you. Guys, I'm going to send troops back, and he's dealing with all this stuff going on in Italy with the Pope and with Austria. And he's like, oh, I can't go to Haiti right now, so I'm going to send troops back. Go with it. You guys go to Haiti, make sure you know you stop the revolution there and whatever's going on. Mm-hmm. And while he and and obviously the problem there is all the men he sent back to Italy, they started dying. Or Italy, I'm sorry, Haiti. I don't know why I'm thinking Italy at this time of night. <laughs> Haiti. Sends him back to Haiti. Now, all the things that he's doing in Haiti, most of the men start dying of disease. They start dying of disease. They, and Haiti really repeats itself. Yeah. Right, and, and they start dying of disease kind of like as it was in Egypt. Uh, the revolt was so strong that literally Napoleon is like, I don't think if I lose Haiti, I, I am losing Haiti. I, I mean, it looks like Haiti's going to just be independent. Well, I don't think I can have what I have in America. Because now... This is where America comes into the story, folks. America had a whole part, about a third of America. This is what extends into most of what is known as the Midwest, extending all the way down into the main South. About a third of America as we know it, was under French rule. Now, this part of America was still called France. Now, once Napoleon realized, I don't think I'm gonna hold Haiti, He's, and he realizes, because it's going to cost more to hold France without having an outpost somewhere close, like Haiti, as an island in the Caribbean where you could just send troops over, you know, to check out how France is going in America, you know? That part of America, at least. He's like, I'm going to give up new France. And this is what became known as the Louisiana Purchase yep. of 1803. You know, Thomas Jefferson is like... Wow that's a measly price 15 million dollars for all this land sounds good <laughs> literally if I'm correct it was like three cents an acre Napoleon sold this for three cents an acre and let's also recognize Napoleon was struggling yeah, they were in France was in debt as a whole they were exactly they were in debt so he was trying to also raise money for future uh, combats and stuff going on there so he's like Haiti doesn't look like much of a Much of, how do I say? Much of, uh, doesn't look very valuable in this case. So I'm going to give up Haiti. I'm going to sell Louisiana. America now has it under the Louisiana Purchase. And I'm going to go back and concentrate on Europe. So this is now where he concentrates on Europe. And now the story gets really interesting. Because now, uh, Napoleon has Italy. Napoleon has now taken over Italy, pushed back Austria. Napoleon has now gotten rid of Haiti, sold it. They now have money. Now, the UK, or Great Britain at this time, is realizing Napoleon is getting too strong. So what did they do? They declared war. (laughs) May 1803, the UK declares war, and now the UK again is fighting their perpetual war, with France. Now let's get this correct. Isn't it true that the UK basically fought a perpetual war with France for some 20 years? Yes. I mean, even though they may have not declared war per se, and even when they did declare war, they were always fighting perpetual wars with France mm-hmm. on the coastline mm-hmm. in the sea. They were sending men economically economically yeah. and doing stuff like that. So they declared war, everyone's mad. And everyone's, like, disappointed. (laughs) Literally. Alright. Now, the story now is getting more fascinating. By January 1804, there was an assassination plot on Napoleon. Everyone is freaking out. No one knows... Well, not no one knows. Everyone's wondering, who would want to assassinate Napoleon? Remember, he is first consul. He owns everything. He is literally supreme leader of France. Mm -hmm. So now, the question is what will he do mm-hmm. who was the man that was trying to assassinate napoleon it was a man named louis antoine Henri de bourbon condé mm? what a name a whole mouthful for a name <laughs> louis antoine Henri de bourbon condé duke d'anguien what a name anyways <laughs> I'm going to stop uh, going on my little tangent. on names there. <laughs> but um, <laughs> Okay. So he literally does this assassination plot. Mm. And what do we know about Louis Antoine? He was from the House of Bourbon. And who else do we know that was from the House of Bourbon? Louis Sixteenth and Marie Antoinette. So basically the royalist exactly. in disguise. Exactly. He was a royalist because he was actually part of that royal line. From the House of Bourbon. And so, yeah. And he had,
1: theoretically, after He had they, the right to the Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah after, after they fell, mm-hmm. he had the right to the throne. He literally... He had went. all the pieces ready exactly. for Exactly. Because yeah.
0: the French revolutionaries, the Jacobins, literally yeah. got rid of all, all the French House of Bourbon.
1: Except him. He was
0: still there, underlining... Oh, it, it, yeah, it, he was living undercover, yeah, basically. Yeah. Because, I mean, if we notice, Louis Sixteenth died. Marie Antoinette died. Louis XVI's son... Louis the 17th actually died in 1795 in prison. What a sad story. I mean, a 10-year-old kid dying in prison, probably for things he didn't even know he, what he was in prison for. So now Louis Antoine, he comes from the House of Bourbon as a duke, and he's like, I'm going to assassinate Napoleon, and I'm going to take the throne as, I don't know, Louis the 18th or something like that, <laughs> whatever would come next at whatever he names himself king. Napoleon figures this out, puts him on trial, and he executes uh, Louis-Antoine-Henri de (laughs) Bourbon-Condé. He was a duke. Mm. So he decides to execute this man. Now, what is amazing here is Napoleon now uses this idea. Oh, so you're trying to restore the House of Bourbon. Okay, no problem. I'm going to now get rid of the remnants of the house of bourbon and Mm -hmm. now say that the napoleonic line now that i'm first consul Mm -hmm. this napoleonic line needs descendants okay i'm the start of this napoleonic line i'm going to have descendants therefore we are going to now have a new dynasty under my name so he crowns himself emperor well he doesn't really crown himself emperor He calls himself Emperor in uh, May uh, 1804. So, and this will eventually lead to his coronation. Yeah. So, he literally, yeah, he he literally calls himself Emperor, and literally everyone is, like, freaking out, because now he's now Emperor. He's now calling himself Emperor. He now has legal rights to the throne. So now December 2nd, 1804, the showdown happens. Okay, he's already called himself Emperor, but now because he's reconnected ties to the Pope. Mm -hmm. Now let's remember this, right? He reconnected ties to the Pope through the Concordat of 1801. Mm -hmm. And now he's like, okay, I want you to make me Pope or uh, not make me Pope, Mm -hmm. make me emperor. And so the interesting thing about this is throughout all history, Mm
1: -hmm. it's really been a power struggle. Mm -hmm. Uh, You can see in the Britain's history and stuff like this, the Pope crowns the new emperors and kings of um, countries that are under, you know, Pope and stuff, exactly. Right. So, Napoleon didn't want to have a confusion of power struggle. Right. He wanted it, everything to be clear. Mm-hmm. So, in his coronation, he actually puts the crown on himself, mm-hmm. showing that I recognize the Pope, but I am my own leader, and
0: the Pope has no power legally over me well that's exactly what it was right i mean at this coronation the pope literally does his uh baptism and his ceremonies and then he's trying to crown him and napoleon takes the crown puts it on his head and it says exactly what you said so crowning yourself and making yourself king right Uh you're you're claiming i'm my own self Mm -hmm. like like you were saying i don't need the pope over me as power i make my own decisions and i mean let's analyze this a bit right during this time period where the Catholic Church was really involved with the politics of the time period, mm. you have really the state, or I should say, the, the kingdoms, right, the, the leaders of the kingdoms, the monarchies, they would go to the Pope for decisions, right? They would literally look to the Pope for guidance, leadership and stuff. When Napoleon put the crown on his own head, he's literally saying, I want to be my own ruler." I don't look to you. And if you look at this in another word, right? In another way, I should say. What is the Pope, right? To Catholics, the Pope is... He holds the key to heaven as God's representative here on earth. Mm -hmm. So if... when When you have the Pope come and literally crown you and do all these things, it's literally legitimating your claim okay, I want to be emperor, so it's, I'm, I'm going... So now the Pope is like, okay, you are now a legitimate emperor under the throne of God.
1: And so, mm. with Napoleon crying himself, it's not like he's going uh, back on the Pope. Because the Pope is at, there at the ceremony, Napoleon's still saying, I recognize you. You are still um, a figurehead.
0: Right, a figurehead. Catch that word, a figurehead. A figurehead.
1: But... I will have the true power. That's what he's saying. That's exactly what he's saying. And so they won't have power confusions because at the end of the day, because um, in history, it's been that way. If the Pope crowns the king, Mm -hmm. but the king has power over everything, who really has power over the Pope and who else? It's confusing. Right, exactly. And so when Napoleon did that, he broke that. Right, exactly. He broke that and he said, this is what it is and
0: this is how it's going to be. Exactly. Exactly. So when he did this, Pope Pius VII, he literally took the, crown out of his hands, crown himself Pope, all these things. Most people think, you know, it was like a seizure, like he just yanked the crown. No, it wasn't a, it wasn't a yanked thing. Like, he didn't just yank the crown and go, hey, I'm taking it. No, it was a planned procedure. People don't realize this because of the things we just recently discussed here. But one thing we must understand, it's the idea, I'm my own ruler. I am not under God. Mm. He's crowning himself. I'm Mm. not under God. Mm. And now we see Again, another morph of Napoleon into this power-hungry man. In my opinion, it's a power-hungry man. And because, now if you
1: think about it, now because he crowned himself emperor, he's now saying, in his mind, he's like, now since the Pope has no power over me, Mm -hmm. who does? Exactly. Who does? He's like, at this point, the sky's the limit. Exactly. Because he's not limited. Mm -hmm. He he just isn't limited. Mm -hmm. He's military-powerful. He um, he has his people behind him. Right. He has no limits to what he can do with the power that has been bestowed to him. Exactly.
0: And literally at this point, now, we entered the year 1805 with the start of the Third Coalition. Mm -hmm. And this is where we're going to come back next, or not next week, but in two weeks, as we will publish our next episode. Thank you for listening today. Yeah. It's been uh, quite a not in conversation, a while, Gabriel. Yeah. It, was, it was really amazing. It was very great. Honestly, we covered so much ground. Yeah. And yeah. I hope that uh, if there was anything learned, you know, we must understand something that makes a national citizen a citizen, I believe, and what I'm starting to recognize, it's also recognizing, how do I say, the weaknesses of the country that you're in. In the sense that, you recognize there's a weakness going on, mm. and you seize it and use it for your own benefit. Yep. And that's what I feel like Napoleon's doing here. I don't yep. know. I don't know what you think about that. What do you think? I mean, I mean Napoleon literally, is seeing what France is doing, and is literally taking it into himself, and is mm. like, I'm going to do this.
1: Yeah, he's he's taking unto himself and saying, I'm gonna do what I'm gonna. I gotta do what I gotta do, and right. I'm gonna do it because I can. And he knows he right. can. And the thing is, he doesn't have much resistance. Because during that time, nothing was really opposing him. Nothing was really stopping him from achieving his goal.
0: Right, exactly. There wasn't
1: a person in his head saying, no, you can't do it. Because he was so high up in power. Right. If you have no resistance, Mm -hmm. you can, you, the
0: sky's the limit, like I said. Right, exactly. And uh, thus, we will come back in two weeks, or next episode, I should say. Next episode with uh, Napoleon's uh, from the third to the seventh coalition napoleon's end at waterloo and we will kind of round out the whole discussion on this idea of napoleon what makes a national citizen a citizen Mm -hmm. from this point on we're actually going to go into our next discussion topic after that and we'll move on from there i'm michael musangu and this is gabriel musangu thanks once again for being on the history connection podcast see you next time goodbye